68 degrees out right now. We're going to see a high of 71 and a low of 55 this evening. The rest of the week is going to be sitting in the low 70s. And now it is time for Planet Watch. Welcome to Planet Watch. I'm Joe Jordan without Rachel Goodman this week. She's at a wonderful music camp where she's teaching way up in the Mendocino headlands, way up the north coast of California. But we got Maya Rodriguez and Tommy Martin working everything for us. And we got three wonderful guests in the studios, a room full of saints. But say hi, Maya and Tommy. Hello there. Oh, and here comes Tommy. Hello there. <laughs> So uh, welcome to Planet Watch, and uh, we're going to do start off as we usually do with a few news stories, news and commentary, and uh, Maya and Tommy have excellent stories, and I've got a few uh, bits and pieces to add at the end. New research warns that the clock is ticking for saving the world's biodiversity. According to a major study in the journal Nature, a global diversity collapse is imminent unless urgent action is taken. In the recent paper titled, The Future of Hyper-Diverse Tropical Ecosystems, an international team warns that a failure to act quickly and decisively could result in unprecedented species loss in the most diverse parts of the planet. This is the first high-level report on all four of the world's most diverse tropical ecosystems, which are tropical forests, savannas, lakes and rivers, and coral reefs. According to the study, the tropics cover just 40% of the planet, yet they are home to more than three-quarters of all species. Many of these species face the double threat of being harmed both by local human actions such as overfishing, logging, and exotic pet trading, as well as events related to climate change such as droughts and heat waves. The researchers have called for efforts to support sustainable developments and conservation interventions to preserve and restore the tropical habitats, also stating that an international approach would be most effective. By the way, there's some business we should take care of before we go any further. We have a podcast. You can go to our fairly new website, planetwatchradio.com. That's planetwatchradio, all one word, dot com. You can subscribe for free, of course, to the podcast. We've done like 80-plus shows. We're now heard on every continent. And, um, well, we also want to thank Mike Zwirling, who owns this radio station, KSCOAM, Commercial Radio, in Santa Cruz, California, for sponsoring this program for low so many weeks and months. And now Tommy's got an item for us. Yeah. <laughs> a group of scientists from the Institute of Physico-Chemical and Biological Problems of Soil Science in Moscow have successfully thawed two nematodes from a chunk of Siberian permafrost. They had been frozen... The, uh, the, uh, sorry, excuse me. A chunk of Siberian permafrost which they had been frozen in for more than 30,000 years. The researchers thawed the samples over several weeks, storing them in petri dishes at 68 degrees Fahrenheit. The, the, <laughs> the nematodes were among a group of 300 samples from the Pleistocene Park in northeastern Russia. One of the worms was found a little over 10 feet underground, while the other was about 100 feet down. While chirogenically preserved animals have been revived in the past, the oldest before these specimens had only been frozen for a few decades. So 30 years to 30,000 years. That's a pretty big jump. 
Well, and as I think you said, Tommy, just so we don't come off too scientifically geeky, nematodes are kind of worms, right? Yes. Okay, good. Just got to get that cleared up. Well, thank you for that one. And uh, I have um, a couple of interesting items and one very sad, bad news kind of thing. I mean, as we speak, major fires are again raging to the north of us. In fact, just a couple days ago, I was driving through the smoke pall from those fires. And, uh, our, you know, although this phrase has unfortunately been cheapened somewhat uh, in some realms of public discourse, our thoughts and prayers are with the people whose homes are being lost and even lives. And, um, well, we're going to be talking more about how these major fires uh, here and elsewhere fit into today's topic, which, by the way, is what are we going to do about the human predicament, in particular climate emergency and we'll even talk about world hunger and so on. Um, so, uh, two more fun items. <laughs> Water has been discovered on Mars. I mean, we already knew there was some ice there, here and there, tucked away. But there's actually like a 12-mile-long underground lake of probably frozen, possibly partly liquid water on Mars. A subterranean <laughs> lake. And stay tuned for more on that. And then the other thing, uh, and this just came out today from our friends at earthsky.org. Wonderful website. If you didn't know about it, check it out, earthsky.org. The item is that solar power from space, space-based solar power, an idea I, as even a NASA guy, used to kind of poo-poo. Turns out it's actually maybe closer and more practical and healthy than you think. <laughs> and again, stay tuned for more on that. We're definitely going to do a show on that. Uh, but a whole big study out of Caltech has just come out, and it's very intriguing. <laughs> so, okay. Well, we are going to move right, I think, uh, unless Maya overrules me. <laughs> Maya's running the show today in Rachel's hey. stead. I think we'll move into our uh, guests in the studio because we got a lot to talk about and some major talent and wisdom to, to be had, uh, a major treat for you folks. But talking about some topics that are pretty grim, <laughs> but also hope for solutions, at least pathways to solutions. Um, and I'm just going to introduce the three people right away. Um, and by the way, I will say, <laughs> as a preview of coming attractions, uh, we had a really great program lined up for today, a local company here that is implementing a really cool, important program uh, that is catching on, and, and uh, it's a lot of fun, and they bailed <laughs> at the last second. <laughs> so I scrambled in the last 24 hours and asked a bunch of people, and suddenly we have an embarrassment of riches here. <laughs> and uh, we have Diane Warren, Jack Nelson, and Surrey Kent uh, uh, joining us to talk about the topics I already mentioned. Um, Diane Warren uh, is the... Uh, she has been involved uh, for a good bit of her recent life with uh, the whole issue of world hunger and poverty. And she is a major hero in the national struggle to get our so-called leadership in Washington and also at the state and local levels engaged with you know, passing legislation and, and other uh, policy devices to get help, you know, to help people to help themselves, to, to help people 
earn their own way out of poverty by giving them a just you know micro enterprise you ever heard of micro enterprise micro lending uh diane's an expert on that she's been involved with an organization called results r-e-s-u-l-t-s and that's an acronym and uh, neither she nor i can remember what it means but the t stands for a buckminster fuller term called trim tab where a trim tab is a little little mini rudder off the main rudder of a ship and it's kind of like when you steer a gigantic ship it takes forever to turn it around but you can use these little trim tabs to sort of adjust your way as you're turning anyway that's all related to the issue of you know getting at poverty and then the other thing that diane's involved with is another major organization uh that was actually founded by at least one or maybe even two of the same people as results and that one tackles the climate issue again organizing people in very savvy legislatively savvy ways to have significant influence on our congress to actually do something about climate and i know it doesn't look like it now <laughs> but it is going to happen if i mean if we're going to make it this country is going to come around in a big way most people already are but our so-called leaders as you probably know do not necessarily reflect to any significant degree, if at all, the wishes of the majority of people in this country. But anyway, we'll talk about all that. So Diane is also with Citizens Climate Lobby. That is the organization I just referred to that's kind of a sister organization to results. One's about poverty. Citizens Climate Lobby is about climate issues. And uh, they you know, have the same kind of uh, approach to things. Okay, and thanks, Diane, for agreeing on such short notice to come in. Why don't you just say hi for a second there, Diane? Get, get warmed up. Just say hi. Hello. <laughs> and by the way, they are on video. If anybody's watching on our, what is it, Facebook Live or YouTube feed or whatever it is. Facebook Live. You, you can actually, we can all wave. <laughs> we can all wave. Um, and then the next person is Jack Nelson, whom I've known the longest of anybody in this room. Uh, I first met him out in the wilds of Santa Cruz Island, down as one of the Channel Islands off the coast of Southern California on a wonderful... I don't know, week-long natural history trip led by Steve Gleesman, actually, who would be a good interview guest here. He's an expert on it. He founded the agroecology program at UCSC, and he's an expert on it. He's a botanist and everything. But anyway, and it was a program founded by the late, great Ken Norris, and we're, we're going to talk to some of his relatives and offspring at some point on this show. Uh, and Jack um, cares a lot as we all do, about what's really important. And he also knows a lot about what's going down in the world today with the climate and, you know, in amazing detail, but also, you know, has faith that, yes, we can make a difference, and we're, we'll talk about that. <laughs> so welcome, Jack. You can say hi. Yes, hi, Joe. And th thanks, thanks for the friendly intro, but since you uh, like to be a truth teller, I have to fix a lie you uh -oh, told at uh -oh. the start of the program. Uh oh fake news. You, you said you've got a studio full of saints. And, oh, no, no, no. Uh, no. So uh, <laughs> uh, that's not a standard I can live up to. <laughs> Close enough for government work. <laughs> so... Uh, and now, next, right next to me, we got Surrey, uh, Surrey Kent. Uh, I guess her official name is Suzanne Kent, but we go by Surrey. And um, Surrey has worked long in public health, and she is a physician's assistant, works at a couple different offices. She works hard and long. And I was amazed that she actually was available for this trip. And I, I mean, this, this trip, this little uh, adventure we're doing here, the greatest adventure of our lives, as Ken Norris used to say. And uh, she um, knows and cares a whole lot about climate. I know her through, uh, I think, through Citizens Climate Lobby. Yeah, that's where I first met you. And I remember you, it was a potluck, and man, you, she knows how to cook. <laughs> 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 and... Uh, <laughs> 
And so um, she, uh, and one thing that Surrey and I have in common is we are both graduates of Oberlin College, which, by the way, that's in Ohio, up northern Ohio, right on Lake Erie, almost 20 miles south. I used to ride my bicycle up to Lake Erie from Oberlin in the snow. <laughs> and uh, it was the first co-educational college in the world and the first to admit African-Americans, among other things, also very active in the Underground Railroad during the, uh, the Civil War. And uh, so, hey, Surrey, say hi for a second. Hello. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Okay, great. Are the sound levels all okay, Maya? She's she's on it. We we all doing okay? Yeah, we're passing the mic around a bit, so we're going to have to change it up. Yeah, we got so many people in the studio person. here, we got to share a limited number of mics. Um, but yeah, so um, let's see. We're just going to start here <laughs> with a, you know, Diane asked me last night, what's our our one theme? And I said, well, we don't really need any one theme, but if pressed to have one, how about this? Um... We're going to explore the, this predicament we all face in the world, both human and natural, human being like poverty and hunger, which I consider that and war are like <laughs> the, the big two out of three, the other one being this whole climate thing, the environment. And, uh, well, how much do humans have to do with any of this? You know, there's some so-called debate about whether we have anything to do with climate and thus whether we could actually do anything about fixing or salvaging some decent shred of society from climate disaster or emergency or whatever it is that's oncoming. Um, and so talking about problems and then talking about possible solutions and how we all are oriented toward that, whether we have hope, whether it's false hope, naive hope, or whether it's reality-based hope, as I like to put it. So, um, and Diane, since I've first known you in, in connection with both results and uh, CCL, Citizens Climate Lobby, by the way, you can go there, uh, citizensclimatelobby.org. It's a national, even worldwide organization. They have an annual conference every year in Washington, D.C. I think they just had it a couple months ago. And Diane and I both went to it, and we lobbied people in Congress uh, for, you know, a week or so. But... Uh, Diane, why don't you just go ahead and introduce what you think about what I just blabbed on about for a while. <laughs> uh, you introduced me as uh, having some credentials, and to me, the credential I have is that I, in terms of climate change, is that I was have no background in science, uh, I just would read in the newspapers about global warming, and I was getting more and more concerned, uh, especially after my children were old enough that uh, I could really pay attention uh, to such things. Um, so I joined Citizens Climate Lobby, and I went to climate conferences with my team, and read a lot of climate science articles. And, uh, you know, I mean, I was uh, caring at, uh, you know, I, uh, I was an at-home mother for the last few decades. So it's really, I was coming from, I care about what's going to happen to my children, to my possible grandchildren, to everybody else's children and everybody else's grandchildren. Um, 
and you know I sat in a I sat in front of enough well qualified cl real climate scientists who were currently working in the field who are publishing papers peer reviewed studies um, and the message from the climate scientists is climate change is real it's serious it's us it's because of the fossil fuel we're admitting into the air and it's urgent yeah the fossil fuel exhaust that we're emitting into the air yeah yeah and and yeah and it's urgent and it's anthropogenic which is the fancy term for it's us <laughs> we yes. got gas as a society as as a human race yes and i've you know i've been learning about climate science for five years and it just gets you know the articles get worse and worse the news gets worse and worse and yet the awareness and the action don't get any better to match the scale of the problem although maybe that's just in our so-called leadership and among the citizenry you know the electorate uh, uh -huh. maybe awareness is growing i i kind of yeah. think and hope <laughs> True. That is true, and the problem is just so many people say, well, I know it's really bad, but what, what can I do? So that's kind of partly what we're going to talk about here today. By the way, I right. forgot to say a very important, another business item. You are encouraged to, and Tommy to my right here, is scanning the computer for your emails. Some of you already know how you can reach us by email. You can interact with our guests and us now or anytime in the next you know, half hour or so, but of course, anytime, also in between programs via this email address it's all one word radioplanetwatch at gmail.com so that's radioplanetwatch at gmail.com so keep those cards and letters coming tommy's eagle-eyeing his uh, laptop here next to me and uh, we'll take on your questions and comments as they come in so diane go, go ahead okay. if you want so i mean really the the message i would like to get across is we need even more people involved uh we need more more people stepping up to decrease their own carbon footprint. We need more people calling their congresspeople or join us at Citizens Climate Lobby, come lobby directly. Um, yeah, and, you know, you're going to talk to us in a little while. I'm going to have cycle through here a little bit, and then we'll have sure. some banter. But you're going to talk to us about a new thing that you're excited about. I may be excited about it. It's 2020orbust.org. 2020 or bust, all one word, dot org. So Diane's going to tell us about that later. Um, but meanwhile, yeah, we'll just kind of go down the row here, and then we'll just have a free-for-all for a while, and maybe we'll get some interaction with listeners too. But so Jack, you probably – Jack is much more – he does have – uh, a scientific background. Um, you majored in probably what environmental? Well, I came back to school a second time around a, as a slug, UCSC environmental studies. In Banana the mid, slugs. In yes. the mid 1980s. <laughs> so, hello, any slugs out there? And that that was when I learned about uh, really learned something about uh, earth system science and uh, climate change was. Uh, sitting in an environmental studies classroom with a professor putting slides up on the screen uh, showing us uh, projected uh, te temperature outcomes. Uh, this was back in uh, the late 1980s, about the time that Jim Hansen went to Congress and told the members of Congress that we had a problem. 
And back then, I took some comfort in the fact I looked at that graph of different climate models projecting out into the future, and they were projecting a range of scenarios. And so I thought, okay, well, they don't know exactly which scenario we're going to get, so there's uncertainty. So maybe they don't know. Maybe we're okay. And, of course, today we're somewhere along the worst-case scenario, and there's still some uncertainty about how bad it could get, but uh, we're very certain that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, and we're, we've put a lot of it up in the atmosphere. And, uh, you know, to throw in a little science, I'd like to mention a, a fancy scientific word, hysteresis, which is uh, refers to when the effect of something is delayed, it comes after the cause. So we put up the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the full effect of it doesn't happen until later. And then that comes back to us uh, funny human beings who aren't very good at thinking about things that involve hysteresis. Yeah, I remember that term hysteresis from electronics classes. <laughs> you get that on, you get examples of that displayed nicely on an oscilloscope. But um, yeah, well, so, uh, and and we do want to talk some about possible solutions and actually Suri has on her desktop in front of her here a book full of possible solutions so as Jack you could slide that mic over to Suri we're going to yes. bring Suri on here and she can tell us her take on stuff at least initially so the, the most important things on your mind about all this hmm. Suri thanks for being here well you know I'm going to, to just start off by picking up on the uh, the piece of reading that Maya did right at the beginning about biodiversity um, because really I I got involved in the climate movement climate and just uh, feeling that that the understanding climate change was uh, the most important thing in my life really because of, of the tremendous effects that it will have on my family on me on families all over the world, and on all the families <clears throat> of living beings on the world, in the world, um, when when I was in just about to start college, uh, Rachel Carson's book *Silent Spring* was was published, and uh, I I read that, and it really changed my life because it 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 was and primarily about DDT, but also uh, other pesticides that uh, were being used on vast quantities all over the world uh, in that time period, and their effect on birds, uh, which, in to put it very simply, uh, it affected them, their, the way the eggshell was created, thinning the eggshell so that the eggs broke before the little babe could hatch and so uh so species like pelicans and bald eagles and peregrine falcons that many people found uh wonderful and awesome were their uh, their populations were plummeting and the key thing about that book was hitting the truth that that human activity could affect biodiversity on a huge global scale. And even though we often can't see it, uh, it's, it's uh, as climate change has 
become more and more recognized, we, we see that, that the pesticides were only one small part of what human beings' activities could bring about on a global scale. Um, the, uh, I've been a, a lifelong a member of the Audubon Society. Yay. Uh, my, my, and and I think that it's. I I want to wanted to bring up the Audubon Society because it's such an important example of of an organization that is bipartisan. It's not. I mean, it's not nonpartisan. It it has uh, almost half of of the members of the Audubon Society are Republicans. Uh, if, you know, it probably varies a lot, but it's, uh, it's, it's just an organization of people who love the out of doors and love birds and love the habitats that enable birds to exist. And um, it's, uh, it's really interesting that an organization like the Audubon Society, people can trust I feel, who, who don't necessarily feel comfortable trusting climate scientists. Who are these climate scientists? And their models and stuff like that. Whereas the ornithologists, which means people who, scientists who study birds, uh, they're, they're studying things on a very concrete kind of level. How, how are populations of birds able to survive? How is the biodiversity that enables them to survive? How is it changing uh, when, for example, spring is coming th uh, more than two weeks early in some areas and the birds come back from migration and everything's off kilter? The insects that they need to, to fuel up from their migration are hatched in a different time. Um, so that, can, that has been studied and um, I, I won't go on and on, but I'll read you I'll read you a little, um, uh, the result, one of the, one of the uh, results of a nationwide study. Um, models predict that the, range, the, the ranges of 588 North American bird species under future climate scenarios found that the majority, 314 species out of 588, will lose more than 50% of their current range by 2080. Hmm. So my children, if they like birds and go birding with me, or remembering me, um, they won't be able to see some of the beautiful species that I have been able to see. Um, of the 314 species at risk from climate change, 126 of them uh, classified as climate endangered are projected to lose more than 50% of their current range by 2050. So I won't even continue on like that, but um, I feel like um, sometimes, sometimes people living in cities and suburbs are kind of disconnected from nature and how important biodiversity and the natural systems are to us. But uh, this week, the, the, there's analysis of how this, these enormous hot spells and droughts covering the whole north, north, northern hemisphere uh, right now in, in July, how those are affecting things like 
grain production and um, and how it affects the livelihood of many people. So it's it's not just affecting birds and habitat, it's affecting human habitat. So to me, it all comes together. And uh, I hope that some of you listening will also see how it could come together for you, the need for action on the part of all of us. Thanks, sir. That was uh, heartfelt, deep, eloquent. And uh, well, of course, anybody listening, uh, we want to think, okay, is there anything we can do? You know, what do we do? Is there a way out? And, you know, that begs the question, do we have anything to do with this? You know, I mean, a lot of people, <laughs> I remember some congressman said, I think it's a cycle. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there is real natural climate change, okay? Ice ages were an example, a fine example of natural climate change. But the human-caused anthropogenic climate change now is dwarfing, dwarfing the natural cycles. <laughs> and uh, so, okay, but there's good news in that horror. Namely, if we caused it, maybe we can at least have a little something to do with uncausing it or, you know, mitigating it or and or certainly adapting to it. We, but we don't want to have to just do nothing but adaptation. And we had a show earlier, uh, you know, one of our first shows interviewing the climate action coordinator for the city of Santa Cruz. We'll have her back on sometime to update us on, you know, expected sea levels in the future and what the city of Santa Cruz is going to do for hardening its infrastructure and so on and so on. But, hey, mitigating, get, you know, lessening the problem. And uh, I'll just say my two favorite things, uh, and this kind of covers a whole lot. we got to stop emitting carbon. ASAP, just zero out our emissions, and we got to go beyond that. We got to go beyond zero to negative, negative emissions, taking carbon out of the atmosphere in climate significant quantities, tens of billions of tons a year out of the atmosphere. That part, nobody knows how to do yet. Even the zeroing out, we do know how to do that, but <laughs> it's a political problem because, you know, it takes money to do these things, and how do you get money on a big scale? Politics. <laughs> Politics is all about haggling over whatever money there is, or even how much money there is. And I maintain that, look, where you got, where you got people and you got good work to do, there is money. You, you can make money just with people doing good work. You make as much money as you need. And anything worth doing, we must and can spend on to employ people doing that good work. So anyway, uh, but so we know how to get rid of the carbon uh, that we, I mean, get rid of our carbon emissions, but we do not know how yet to get rid of the carbon that's already there. We don't want to get rid of all of it. We need a bunch of it for the natural greenhouse effect whereby the oceans are liquid. The oceans, by the way, if it were 60 degrees colder, it would be 60 degrees colder uh, Fahrenheit if we had no another greenhouse gas, a natural greenhouse gas, water vapor in the atmosphere, but also the other greenhouse gases help. You know, they, we need a healthy level of them, like pre-industrial levels, about 280 parts per million of carbon dioxide, for instance. But we're way above that now. You know, we're way above 400, well, slightly above 400 parts per million and counting. So, okay, how do we get that carbon stock out of the atmosphere and maybe make money doing it? You know, make a good business, making desirable things that people can use. Um, and, you know, we're not going <laughs> to solve that problem here. But there you go. That sets the stage. We've got to get rid of our carbon emissions as soon as possible. And we've got to start working and thinking about getting carbon out of the atmosphere on top of the stopping our emissions altogether. 
And, uh, okay, so there you go. That's, <laughs> now I'm going to shut up for the whole rest of the hour. By the way, Maya and Tommy, um, feel free to jump in with any questions. And do we have anything out there coming in? I see something just came in on the web. Let's see here. Uh, oh, there is a... Somebody's announcing there is a climate conference in... <laughs> need my glasses. Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Um, August 24th, 25th, and 22nd, or 26th, sorry. Where you can become a climate ambassador. Okay, well, so, and it did, it was Al Gore. Yes. This is climate, mentioned. climate reality. Okay, climate yes. reality. Know about that? So, Suri says that's a program called Climate Reality, which, yeah, I know about, but I haven't been keeping track right, of what they're doing. If they're interested, they can go online. <laughs> you, you, if you go to climatereality.org online, you can learn about this uh, it's a it's a more than a conference it's a training to be a climate uh educator and explainer mm -hmm. okay well so i've blabbed enough uh anything from anybody else here and or our listeners uh, by the way we, the witching hour is about 252 we'll go kind of long we'll have the oddball stuff at the end but we'll shorten it because we've got so much talent and wisdom in the room here so and virtue there's there's virtue be here in this room. Well, Joe, uh, you, you mentioned two things we need to do. Uh, get off fossil fuels, stop emitting, emitting carbon, and pull some of that carbon out of the atmosphere, find a way to do that. And so I, I'm here with the uh, uh, issue of Nature magazine, and that's uh, not, not like uh, Sierra Club or Audubon. It's an international weekly journal of science, and they've got a short article in their uh, June 14th, 2018 issue, uh, price of sucking CO2 from air plunges. Technology moves closer to economic viability. So I just want to, uh, while we're at this grim subject, inject a little note of a little bit of hopefulness. Um, I, for one, think we'd be fools to assume that somehow a technology is going to step forward and save us from the real responsibility to reduce our emissions. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you're probably right that we're going to need also this Both. <laughs> this backstop. Yes. And so this is about uh, an outfit called Carbon Engineering in Calgary, uh, Canada, mm -hmm. uh, that's been working on this. And they've got a, a design that blows air through towers that contain a solution of potassium hydroxide, which reacts with CO2 to form potassium carbonate. And then they do some more processing and they've got some pellets that they can either uh, bury underground or um, actually they're hoping to use it to make synthetic low carbon fuels out of it. And now uh, carbon engineering isn't making any money. And this has been a very expensive process, uh, but they are seeing the, the potential price of this dropping quite a bit. Yeah, there's an acronym for this thing Jack just described, DAC, which means direct air capture, and it's in this book by Paul Hawken et al. called Drawdown that Surrey has with her. And so far they're doing it on a very, you know, trivial uh -huh. scale, but <laughs> you always got to start somewhere. <laughs> I should mention the reason they exist, at least in part, is they've got a gentleman named Bill Gates sending them a check. <laughs> so... <laughs> So they can, they're free to uh, explore this technology in advance of uh, 
we, they should really be getting United States government support for research like this, and they're not. But yeah. So now some would charge that oh, Bill Gates is picking winners. You know, the so-called conservatives like to use that phrase for people who favor renewable energy over coal and oil. You're picking winners. We've got to let the free market rule. Well, hey, our government is picking winners by its extreme largesse and pork being lavished on the coal and oil and the whole fossil fuel and even nuclear fission. You know, uranium plutonium-based nuclear fission. It's just huge beneficiary of government pork. And the government has been picking winners for decades. And it's about time, yeah, let's have the free market. Bring it on. Renewable energy and sky power will win hands down if allowed to. So, uh, well, anyway, anybody else? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'd just like to this mention... Diane, again. I'd just like to mention 2020orbus.org. Oh, yes. yes, yes. And... Uh, emphasize that none of us have to be a climate genius to make a difference um you uh, you know you need to choose to believe or take the risk of you know that just maybe those all of those climate scientists around the world are correct and that we really all need to get in this game of um stopping our emissions and 2020 or bust is dot org dot org is just uh very soon it's at the end of this month they're supposed to be releasing an application slash game they call it the game of the century they want to get uh, i mean they don't have the funding yet but they're working on it to get media and celebrities involved and and get this game uh, out in the world and get 500 million individuals reducing their carbon footprint. That's half a billion, so that's roughly one-fifteenth of the current world population, which is significant. Yes. And it's also significant that it doesn't have to be everybody, that this actually, to win this game, what they want to do is meet a target that the Paris Agreement did not, which is to reduce uh, our emissions by 8 gigatons by 2020. What was that website again? It's 2020orbust.org. And it's posted to our Facebook. Yay! Thank you. Tommy's on it. <laughs> so I just want, you know, the moms, the grandmas, the dads, the grandfathers, everybody to know that, you know, if you change your light bulbs to LEDs, if you can afford an electric car, if you can put insul more insulation in your home and reduce your energy costs, if you can cut back on buying what you don't need, these are all things everybody can do to make a difference. And if you start making that difference and start really informing yourself, you might find yourself uh, demanding more of your government, too. Yeah, well, so uh, she said an application, uh, a.k.a. otherwise known as an app, you know, for one of these mobile devices that are legion. And I guess the idea is uh, that you know, you're tracking and kind of advertising to others and sharing with others what yes. you are doing. And, you know, there's this question, okay, what can I do? Mm -hmm. I'm just one person out of billions. Right. And, you know, there's this discussion among 
people who should know better about, you know, does it make a difference? Well, of course it does. I mean, you know, I remember asking my dad when I was a kid, does an atom weigh anything? I mean, they're so tiny. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you know, a whole lot of them do. Yeah. <laughs> and there you go. There's your homespun you wisdom. You know, a whole lot of people pulling together in the right directions to move this great ship of state and of humanity. Uh, we have to make a difference. Yes. I mean, we made a difference already. That's right. <laughs> we're making a bad difference. We right. need to be able to make a good difference. And, well you know, said, so Joe. Some people say, well, we need a great spiritual transformation of humanity. Well, maybe... Maybe you're hearing some of that right now, you know, on this hour. That's right. Um, but, yeah, we'll keep going. We, get a, we got a good comment on this subject. Uh, this is Tommy. Yeah, this is from a listener, though. This is the email we got. Uh, upcoming November elections. Cross-check electoral college and gerrymandering. What you can do, pick a district and help get out the vote. Terrific. Yes, yes. Uh, in fact, we actually ended up uh, in Fresno last weekend. I'm not going to name names, but we were beating the streets in the heat, 105 degrees Fahrenheit, for a couple of days to unseat, beating the streets in the heat to unseat the <laughs> evil congressperson who's down there, and there is a very promising opponent who we hope will win. He's closing the gap rapidly, and we need people. We need people power. Take over. I'd like to just make a, a comment about upcoming elections uh, that it doesn't really, right now, it matters a great deal to get what whoever is running from whatever party and whatever level of government to get them to answer questions and speak out about how they view climate change, what yes. they plan to do how they plan to listen to their constituents about how it's affecting them and what they're concerned about. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's an issue that a lot of times I feel the elected, the, the people running for office may not really want to talk about because they, they're worried that it's controversial or whatever. But we, we drastically need our... Uh, elected representatives to be informed about the science, to be to be thoughtful about solutions, and to listen to us, their constituents. And it doesn't matter what what uh, party a person's running from. So speak up and ask them. <laughs> Great. And, and we yes. had a listener speak up, by the way. Uh, this is good old uh, Green Ray, I guess we could call like the green flash on the sun. Uh, He's an expert on biofuels and longtime friend. Anyway, he says, many people don't want to acknowledge this, but we also need to stop eating animals. Or you know what? At least reduce <laughs> the heavy animal-heavy diet of, you know, the rich people of the world, including those from the sea. Suri spoke wisely when she said her grandchildren won't see bird species she saw. I already don't see species I used to see right here in Santa Cruz. In the late 70s, I watched thousands of steelheads swim up the San Lorenzo River from the train trestle by the boardwalk. There used to be golden eagles just north of Boulder Creek. We also need to grow all organic crops right on. Joe's right that we can turn this all around. Thanks for all the work you all are doing. So, hey, there you go. If it helps you, you know, we all need encouragement from things like that. And uh, I, I will say, uh, this business that... Uh, was it Surrey that just said uh, about communicating to people about climate? It takes some daring. It takes some courage, especially when you're in a milieu where people are hostile 
Now, I have to say, yesterday, I'm going to refer you to a two-hour, if I don't say so myself, semi-masterpiece of <laughs> such communication on this radio station. It was the Saturday special. If you go to Z, as in zebra, zbsradio.com, and you'll get all the shows that this station does, and go to the Saturday special and just click on and download the last episode, the one from Saturday, July 28th. We had a two-hour free-range, freewheeling, swashbuckling conversation with listeners who actually were calling in, many of whom were challenging and, you know, attacking. And anyway, I dealt with it. I was, I was going solo with the station owner and host of the show, and we, uh, you know, handled it with humor and respect and uh, science and nature. And anyway, uh, if you want to know a little bit more about how, how it's done, how to communicate with some of these folks, uh, respecting them, you know, you, you find your common ground and then you kind of get out to where, okay, well, and, you know, something I didn't even say on that show, but this is a fundamental insight I had a few years ago. You can have the same values as people who you think you are lunatics and they may think you're lunatics you have the same basic values and hopes and dreams but it all comes down to who do you believe for your so-called facts that's where the rub is where who what are you reading what are you seeing and so you know you're both intelligent wise people but and so that's where you got to tease out okay we may have a lot more common ground than we thought so that's where any really good fertile discussion so i'm infinitely fascinated with that whole thing of reaching out to the other side instead of just preaching to the choir all the time so and tommy i think that that political tribalism is why there's a lot more people who are becoming independents oh political independent political independence. yeah uh -huh. yeah well, uh, and this is Jack, and uh, those kinds of conversations don't even necessarily need to be political in terms of, well, which political party are you affiliated with or who do you vote for, but just human being to human being, hey, we've got this problem with climate. Uh, it takes a little courage to bring the subject up sometimes. And so I've, I've had that experience. People roll their eyes. <laughs> oh, you know, a, a classic for me was a few, some years ago, I was on the phone with my sister in Minnesota, and I cited some latest piece of dismal climate news. And probably in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, I'm going to get my sister more concerned about this issue. And her response on the phone, and we were having a lovely brother-to-sister conversation, uh, her response was, well, that's depressing. Can we change the subject? And and I thought, at the moment, I thought, well, okay, you know, that's fair. We're having a fun conversation. Why spoil it this time around? There'll be another time. And so I, I said, okay. And But later on, on reflection, I thought, well, maybe this wasn't just a matter of not being the right time. Maybe it was a matter of just not this human tendency to not want to have a difficult but important conversation about a subject like this. So that's, that's, that's kind of a human thing that's out there. And um, I, I've got a, a, a book by Kathleen Dean Moore with me here. She's a, a moral philosopher who uh, was a professor at Oregon State University on that subject. She wrote a book called Great Tide Rising Towards Clarity and Moral Courage in a Time of Planetary Change. So she's talking about how do we do this? Um, how do we talk about climate change? And, and this is what she has to say in one paragraph. Here's what I have learned from experience. It's hard to talk about climate change. People don't want to hear it. They turn away in guilt, in exasperation, in hopelessness, in fear, in despair for their children, 
and reluctance to make any changes in their lives. An embarrassment to see me acting like a kook. Who knows? But for everyone who turns away, there is another who is relieved to finally be able to talk about what she has been holding in her heart, a secret that can finally be told. Yes, I too am worried about climate change. What shall we do? Hmm. So that, that's been my experience also, is that people are concerned about this. Uh, more and more people do understand that climate change is scientifically valid, and we've got to do something, but they're not sure what. So that's where these human conversations come in. You know, uh, I, w I think this is a good lead-in to just mentioning more about the book title that we've mentioned several times called Drawdown. Uh, drawdown referring to uh, a goal of, of not only stopping emitting more greenhouse gases into the environment, but drawing out the excess to stabilize the climate. And uh, the, the uh, editor is Paul Hawken, H-A-W-K-E-N, uh, um, there's a subtitle, The Most Comprehensive Plan Ever Proposed to Reverse Global Warming. And the thing that I find so wonderful about it is that a team of non-paid uh, scientists and, uh, and analysts from all over the world got together to uh, come up with uh, statistically significant uh, comparisons of all of the the one to find the 100 most powerful ways to do this to to uh, stop emissions and draw down excess uh, pollution, and uh, so it's it offers tremendous hope because it shows how multifactorial it is that there are so many different things that will all help and basically we should do most of them all at once but we don't all have to do all of them that right. one of the things that's very powerful is educating girls and women all over the world while also providing them with family planning information so that they can have healthy families of the size they want um, and be able to feed those families so my goodness, who'd have thought, right? Uh, where so the techies can can uh, examine this book and see uh, ways, complicated ways to uh, make the grid work better, and uh, people who are into educating girls can find something they can do. Um, they're and so that they're, also in starvation. So two big things at once. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, if we have less. Uh, people around or, or less greatly increasing numbers of people, then the, the emissions that we all make uh, may become more under control. And, uh, and you know, it's an unknown fact that the best way to end hunger and poverty, the best, the best way to reduce population or to get population under control is to end hunger and poverty. You might think it's the other way around, but the main direction of that is you have to end poverty or greatly reduce it and then you actually control and lower population 
so let's see. I want Jack to have a have a, a chance here, but I'm just going to quickly read off a, a few examples of other things. There, uh, it, We've got about uh, one oh, minute. Oh, left. okay. All right. <laughs> I just I encourage this book is inexpensive, and uh, I encourage people to you can you can actually go online if you put drawdown.org uh, or Google it. You you can find. Uh, online information about it, uh, but it's very hopeful because there's room for everyone to follow their interests and find ways to make a difference. Take it away, Jack. Uh, yeah, well, parting quick parting words from both Jack and Diane, and then well, uh, we in the 10% affluent part of the world have a job to do as well, besides that, educating women and girls. So. Uh, Oxfam had a report to the Paris Climate Conference titled Extreme Carbon Inequality, reporting that uh, the affluent 10% of the world emits 50% of the lifestyle carbon emissions. And so... Uh, the top what percent? The Ten. affluent 10% of Ten. the world's population. Mm -hmm. So those of us who are in that affluent 10% flying everywhere, long long haul plane flights, all that, we've got a job to do too. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jess. Yes. Diane, the last word with Diane. Thank you for inviting all of us here. Well, you all did a fantastic job, and of course, you're gonna, we're all going to continue working on this stuff. And I just want one minute for my oddball sky stuff, because there is wonderful stuff above it. This is the cosmic relief part of the show, okay? <laughs> you can see five planets now. Four in the sky and one on the ground, namely the Earth on which you stand. But uh, in the early evening now, you got Venus blazing bright white in the west in the beautiful blue twilight. And then you look a little more to the south and a little higher up, you got Jupiter, you know, almost as bright as Venus. And then way over to the left of that, you got a pretty bright but not as bright white dot. That's Saturn. And then finally, way over in the east, you cannot miss this one. And it just has passed its brightest in 15 years is the angry orange Mars. <laughs> and it is really bright. And it was right next to the moon the last couple of nights. And, um, well, in between... Saturn and Jupiter is this orange twinkly thing, and that's a star, Antares, the heart of the scorpion. And you know how Mars was the Roman god of war, Ares, A-R-E-S? Well, that star, Antares, rivals Mars in its redness and brightness, so it's anti-Ares. In fact, one of my students once said, oh, it's the peace star. <laughs> so there you go, anti-Ares, anti-Ares, anti-war. So, uh, hey, we got like 10 seconds left, but thanks to all of you, and thanks to you listeners, and yeah, we had a few uh, inputs from outside, which we'll get to in between this show and